This podcast is brought to you by FormKeep. Form endpoints for designers and developers. No iframes, JavaScript embeds, or CSS overrides. Try out our sandbox mode before you buy at formkeep.com. Giant robots smashing into other giant robots. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast. My name is Ben Orenstein, and I'm here today with Ash Dryden. Hey, Ash. Hey there. How's it going? Good. How are you? Good. So the thing that strikes me is you seem like you do so many things. Like I was reading through your bio and all that, and you're a programmer and an author and a speaker and a conference organizer and a White House fellow. Yes. And that's <laughs> uh, that's pretty amazing. That's a heck of a resume. Yeah, I do um, a lot of random things that I never I never expected to be doing any of them. So mm-hmm. it's it's always kind of a surprise to me too. <laughs> totally. Do you have trouble like like context switching between all those things? Um, not necessarily. I've worked for myself um, for probably the past five or seven years. So I'm pretty used to being the person who wears every single hat mm-hmm. um, and kind of transitioning like I have over the past three or four years from doing mostly programming to doing a whole lot of community stuff and um, like education for companies and conferences and communities and stuff has has made it much easier and and, and to bounce back and forth between things. So. That's great. So I, as I was uh, looking through everything you do, I had trouble coming up with a summary. So I figured I would just let you do it. Maybe you want to like kind of just talk about what you're into and how you, how you summarize your work. Uh, yeah. So um, I've been a programmer for 15 years, a uh, really long time, longer than I've done anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, over the, the past uh, five years, I've worked almost exclusively on creating more diversity and inclusivity in the tech industry. Um, to that end, I do a lot of writing. I speak at a lot of conferences. Uh, I run AlterConf, which is a traveling conference series that brings together marginalized people to talk about diversity in tech and the gaming industries beyond a one-on-one level. Um, and we pay everybody, and it's uh, mm-hmm. super community-focused and driven, and I really love doing that. And I do a lot of consulting with businesses, conferences, and open source communities. And I work as a a White House fellow trying to end police brutality in the U.S. Wow. That's 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 awesome. Thanks. What? So did you pick tech because it was close to you and you were seeing it firsthand? Is that why that's your focus? Yeah. Um, so I, the only industry I've really ever been in is tech. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was always the only woman, the only queer person in yeah. a room. And for a long time, I actually didn't realize it because I kind of grew up as like one of the guys. All of my friends were guys. All of the things I was into were like dominated by men. So I didn't really realize that there was a problem until I started seeing more accounts of people being sexually harassed and people saying really terrible things to them. And then once I started realizing that, I noticed that it was happening to me too. Mm. Um, I've had um, quite a few different incidents at conferences and at different companies, including um, a startup that I ran, that it just kind of became too unbearable. um, And I wanted to see things change. So after an incident happened in the Ruby community four or five years ago, I kind of started focusing on this. Mm Mm-hmm. It's great that you felt like you could uh, step up and start trying to fix these problems that you were seeing. Well, I mean, it really started as me just being mad about it. Like, I I was just upset that nobody else was upset about it. Um, And it just kind of 
took off from there. It was it was kind of amazing to me that people would listen um, because I, I wasn't seeing that happening to other people. I was seeing a lot of other people trying to speak up and uh, and struggling to get their voices heard. So I was really surprised when um, people started listening when I got upset. Mm. So I've, I've been doing a lot of research in particular for this episode. And uh, one of the things I've read is sort of like just uh, advice for allies who are looking to you know help. And one of the, it seemed like the one of the repeating pieces of advice I saw was to actually just listen, to do just that, like pay attention when people are talking and saying there's a problem. Yeah. And, and that's actually is something that's hard for a lot of people because we want to think about the people that are near us and the people we've always worked with. And we think back when we hear people say like, hey, this is a problem that I have all the time. And mm-hmm. how do you not notice it? And we think about all of those people, our friends and people we respect. And um, it's very hard for us to hear what they're saying and to believe them because it's so different from our own experience. Totally, totally. So, yeah, I think that's definitely you touched on it, which is it, it doesn't it sort of doesn't sound right. You're like, that can't be that can't be right. That can't be true. Like some, someone must be misinterpreting or something like that. But then you, you just keep hearing these things over and over. Uh, but I have personally been shocked just talking to female friends and the things I've learned and read and all that. It's just it's kind of mind blowing. It's, it's hard to imagine people doing a lot of these things. And so it's like your first instinct is like that. That can't that can't be right. That must be wrong. Yeah, and it's it's hard too when you consider the fact that many of us are in a privileged situation where often we're not the target of those things, mm-hmm. or because we're in uh, such a majority, it's statistically less likely that right. we see those things happen. Right, um, so it becomes even harder to believe, which is where we get this huge backlash of people who get. Um, not only like upset that people are talking about these things, but like violently aggressive, angry, um, and and it becomes a much worse situation than it could have been. <laughs> do, you, do you have a guess as to, I mean, I'm sure this is like a seriously deep question, but why why do you think that response is so aggressive and violent? Because it, it absolutely is. Like I've, I've seen it firsthand and it seems like if you went out and started talking about like why you think JavaScript is like terrible or something, like no one gets quite so angry as like, hey, by the way, there might be like misogyny or, you know, there might be this thing called privilege and people just freak out. I think a really big part of it is that uh, when we have those conversations, what people hear is there are bad people and these bad people fall into the same group that I fall into, Mm -hmm. but I'm not a bad person. You know, what if I tripped up and I made that kind of mistake unintentionally, Mm -hmm. um, would, would people then think that I'm a bad person? So then it becomes a, um, a defense against, um, what they see as people attacking them personally. Um, so it's very hard to separate those things, to show people that um, the culture that we have can lead to these types of things. And we don't really have anything that's holding people responsible and accountable for their actions. And so we just kind of push it under the rug. We don't have these conversations because they're uncomfortable. And then the problem just continues to fester. Mm. This is probably uh, this may just be an artifact of me becoming more aware of of these things in the world and, and paying more attention. But it it seems to be that there is a there's increased discussion around these issues in our industry. Does it is the trend seem that way to you as well? I definitely feel that way. It's hard for me to say if that's the way that it actually is because I feel like I'm in the center of this bubble. So mm-hmm. um, those things, um, you know, get pushed towards me often and I read them a lot more. Um, so I don't know if people are paying more attention, if more people are actually speaking out. I feel like that's the case. I feel like there are far more vehicles and there's far more acceptance for people to speak up, not only about um, individual issues, but about like the breadth of issues that there are. Um, Because when I first started talking about these, I 
these things, I feel like the only people that I saw um, that were speaking up were um, white, cis, straight women. Um, and now I feel like the diversity of voices speaking up um, is much greater. The number of voices is much greater. Hmm. It's yeah, I, I, it's it's my hope that like an inc- like a brighter light is being shined and more people are paying attention. Uh, I, I, like you, I'm not sure if that's just my own perception or, or not. Let's 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 hope things are at least getting better, or at least we're talking about it more and, and trying, if not, yeah. you know, succeeding yet. Absolutely. <laughs> so I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the books that you wrote. Yes. Um, so I have two different books. Um, one of them is focused on uh, specifically for tech companies. Because many companies come to me and say, you know, we want more diversity, but we have no idea where to start. Yeah. So this kind of gives them the 101 of what diversity and inclusion are, um, how everybody impacts them, what they can be doing, what they might be doing that they don't realize is creating kind of this unconscious bias that underlies all of their decisions mm-hmm. um, to kind of give them the tools to make better decisions and to go about things like hiring and treating internal culture and stuff um, in a way that increases diversity and inclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also uh, wrote a book about similar things, but specifically for conferences. So how to find, you know, a diverse lineup, you know, where to where to find people, how to get people to come to your conference, um, what kind of amenities to provide to make sure that everybody has equal access and uh, can get equal enjoyment out of the event. That kind mm-hmm. of thing. It was interesting to me. Uh, you you made this point earlier, but uh, you mentioned paying your speakers for UltraConf and how important that is. Could you just t- talk about why that is? Yeah, absolutely. Often um, marginalized people. So if you're not familiar with what marginalized is, marginalized people are anybody whose um, needs, concerns and identity um, aren't at the like the forefront or the center of what is put forth. So um, when I talk about marginalized people, we're talking about um, women, people of color, um, LGBTQ people, people with disabilities, so forth and so on. Tons of different groups here that are often asked to do the work of educating more privileged people, people who don't fall into those groups, about their plight, about the way that they're treated, and they're often asked to do it for free. Right. Um, and this comes up in ways like having you know a diversity group um, in your company and you want to help hire more people, all of those people jump, you know, all of the marginalized people end up on those kinds of committees and groups doing this extra work on top of their already busy schedules and jobs, and they're not getting compensated fairly for that. Um, So because marginalized people are usually not compensated for that kind of work, they're often paid less for the work that they actually have signed up for. It's really important to me that we compensate people fairly, that we show them that this is something that's valuable, that's needed, and that we see value in it and paying for it. Mm -hmm. I think I've also seen the argument made that if you're not paying, then you are limiting yourself to the speakers that can afford to, you know, set pay their own way and come to your place and buy a hotel room and all that and you're you're sort of shrinking your pool of people that could could speak at your event oh absolutely and that's something that i personally experienced and was part of my motivation i spoke at a lot of conferences over the past three or four years um and kind of switching gears from being a programmer full-time to talking to people about diversity was a huge income loss for me yeah you know it's not a profitable industry to be in to tell people that like hey you should treat people better Mm -hmm. you know there's not tons and tons of money rolling in um especially when compared to more lucrative career like programming so i was being asked to speak at all these conferences 
taxes and the vast majority of them do not pay. They don't cover your travel. So you're looking at, you know, shelling out, you know, if it's a conference in the same country you are, you know, up to a thousand dollars to cover all of those expenses yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's it's very difficult to have your voice heard when you are um, prevented monetarily, you know, fiscally from participating. Mm-hmm, totally. So just just hopping back to the uh, your uh, the diverse team book uh, for a second. Is the problem that you generally see like is it is it making people aware of the uh, inadvertent slash subconscious things they're doing that might be preventing them from having a diverse team, or is it that that plus also like you need to do these proactive things as well? It's a mixture of both. Mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes, we see that you know almost all of the leadership within an organization are um, people with privilege. So it's not something that they've ever seen firsthand. Mm-hmm. Um, they think to themselves, well, we're not intentionally doing anything that would turn anyone off. We want to treat everybody the same. Um, you know, talks of meritocracy and that kind of thing um, m- make it very difficult for them to see why they're having a problem increasing diversity and making people feel um, that they belong and that they're welcome there. Mm. Um, so it's a mixture of um, the methods that you use, the language that you use, um, the tools that you use to get more people involved to actually make sure that the ways that you're going about things are are things that marginalized people actually want and need. Because there's there's this thing that we do as more privileged people is, is we say, well, we think that marginalized people would need this or would want this. Um, and we do those things without actually asking and following up to see if that's actually what they want or need. Mm-hmm. Um, so actually getting marginalized people involved in the conversation, figuring out where the problems are, you know, what, I mean, sometimes it's as simple as, you know, the language that, you know, people use or, you know, what you call your weekly get together with everybody. Um, it's, there's so many, you know, tiny little things that add up to what makes somebody feel included and that they belong. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's hard to just name one thing. Yeah. So I, I, I don't experience that feeling very often, but I went to, and this might be a stupid example. I went to a spin class, um, a little while ago and, there were like it was nothing explicit but it was like okay i'm the only man here and there was like just like a lot of little things that happened where it was like i don't really feel like this is a place that's like super into having guys here and there was nothing overt and but it was just kind of like there's just a, a few little things here and there that gave me that sort of just nagging feeling it was like i shouldn't i feel like i shouldn't be here like this i'm not sure everyone wants me here um and that was like my tiny glimpse into that because usually i live a pretty damn privileged life so uh it was interesting being on that side and and having that discomfort yeah. And it's it's even harder, too, when you consider the fact that there really isn't, you know, you can go to a different spin class that might have more people like you. Mm-hmm. Um, but the tech industry looks like what it looks like. And especially when you're looking at different pockets that are far more homogenous, you know, when you're looking at um, security and hardware and operating system and that that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, it's, it's way more homogenous than even what we see in the open source community, which is kind of where I come from. And so it's kind of what I specialize in. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's so little diversity, so little uh, chance for people to see even somebody that's like them um, succeeding in a way that they themselves want to succeed. Yeah, that's tough. Yeah. So what do we do other than become full-time, you know, contributors and try to fix this? Uh, the, the, the big thing that we can all do is educate ourselves. Um, it's a really tough thing and it's, it's something that, um, that 
a lot of us put off or we think that it's not very important. It doesn't affect me in any real way. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm not personally touched by a lack of diversity. I'm not doing anything wrong. You know, right. I'm not being mean to people or saying inappropriate things or touching people. Um, so why is it my problem to sit and think about? So educating ourselves about how all of us benefit from this system um, that has created this homogeny, whether that's we're far more likely to be employed, to be paid fairly, that the benefits and perks that companies are providing are geared specifically towards us, um, where tech companies um, tend to be, ten, you know, uh, they take over neighborhoods, especially when we're looking at places like San Francisco and now, um, you know, it's kind of spilling over into the East Bay. Um, so, you know, gentrification happens, right? Or um, we don't have a flexible enough work schedule that, you know, somebody with kids can easily, you know, deal with them being sick or whatever it is. Yep. Um, so it's, it's a bunch of different things. And, um, and I tell people it's, it's difficult in that you never stop learning about it. There are always different things that you can learn. I mean, I've been doing this full time for a lot of years and I still learn new things, um, especially as a mostly privileged person myself, right? Like I'm a white cis woman. Um, I speak English as a first language. I'm mostly abled. I grew up in the United States, you know, middle class. All of those things give me privileges that make it harder to see the way that other people um, have to struggle because I have all of these extra benefits of privilege. Hmm. So just taking the time and talking to people, you know, reading articles, you know, thinking critically about why you believe something is true um, and having an open mind um, because otherwise we can't get anywhere. Right. Like the, the problem with the system isn't marginalized people. It isn't them changing or or anything like that. It's us. It's our attitudes. It's our belief systems um, that, that led us to this problem. And it's the only way we're going to get out of it. Hmm. Do you have any suggested like starting points for educational stuff on this? Yeah, I really love uh, Model View Culture. Um, tons of different, really critical writing uh, about all different aspects of, you know, uh, marginal marginalization and diversity um, in tech. Speaking of something that I created, AlterConf, um, we have all of our videos uh, online for free, so you can, you know, see people's talks talking about um, different kinds of things. But uh, follow different people on Twitter. That's a huge one, mm. you know, and that's something that like you can do very easily and passively. Listen to people that are different than you. Why Why do um, some people feel like, you know, what's happening in the news right now is more concerning than other people? Um, what do we need to pay more attention to? Just so we can kind of see the way that other people live, the way they think, um, and what they see are problems with, you know, what's happening in our world right now. Yeah, just from personal experience, I saw a talk by Brianna Wu um, at the Business of Software Conference, and uh, she recommended uh, that uh, following people on Twitter, or following women on Twitter in particular, just to sort of broaden your your worldview and just get new things coming to you. Uh, and I did that, and it was super enlightening. I actually really recommend that for everybody. Um, there was a whole world of things going on that I had no idea. And it's actually, it's interesting to me how quickly it's become, now I feel like it's just, you should just know about these things. And so I talk to other people about them, and I assume everyone else is talking about this and knowing about it, and it's not true. Um, but so it's it's definitely worth uh, branching out a little bit and, and getting these new voices in. Yeah. And I mean, it's human nature to kind of clump with people that are like us. Yeah. You know, we grow up in a neighborhood with people that are like us. We go to schools with people that are like us. We go into industries where people that are like us, where our friends are like us. Um, and you look around and almost everyone looks like you. So mm -hmm. it's it's real work to go out and find people that are different than you, voices that have differing opinions um, and challenging, you know, the things that you think and the things that you believe.
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I think it, it takes a little while to change those worldviews and to just sort of get a finger on like those stories, like understand like what kind of things are actually happening and kind of plugging yourself into that. Oh, absolutely. Take some time, but I, I, it's been worth it to me. I think it was a great exercise. It makes you a better person, right? It makes you, um, and if, if you're looking at it purely from a software point of view, right, it makes you better at your job. Like you can communicate with more different people, mm. um, you know, your products or, you know, the services that your company are offering can now be targeted to a wider group of people. They can apply to a wider group of people. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it makes sense in every direction that this is something that, you know, we should start paying more attention to. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's, it's uh, I feel like I can be more empathetic now. Yes. Which is great and, and, and an easy win. Like you click follow on a handful of people and, you know, you're, you can shape your brain a little bit differently. Yeah, which is for awesome. sure. So do you think there's something, it seems like tech struggles with this issue a lot. Do you think there's something specific about the industry or is it just kind of an accident of history that, that made it like this? There are a lot of different things. Um, the way that society, um, whether it be media or conferences, or the way that we talk about technology are almost always gendered in a way that is very almost invisible to us. We don't realize that when when we talk about certain things, um, that the words that we use are gendered, or even when we talk about, you know, when we say um, the IT guy, right? Like, even if you're not in the tech industry, like, nobody ever says the IT woman, they always say the IT guy. Like, those kinds of things are so passive and mm-hmm. they've invaded our, our culture in, in such interesting ways. But also like the history of computer sciences is, is really interesting to me in that uh, the word computer actually comes from what we used to call women who computed things like Hmm. that was a job and the vast majority of people who did those things were women software programmers to begin with were all women because typing is a women's a woman's job right Hmm. like so our society like directly led to that and then as uh more money started moving into the industry um like many industries it became much more male dominated because men moved into it because they could make more money in it Hmm. so then we saw um you know more women being pushed out Kind of this big push for, you know, women staying more at home um, led to more um, like toxic environments where, um, you know, why, why are women programmers? Like my grandmother is a programmer, which I, I didn't realize because <laughs> I'm hmm. a terrible granddaughter apparently until I started talking about these things. Um, and, you know, she tells me stories and she's shocked that things are still the way they are because she thought that they had gotten better. Right. Hmm. You know, she tells me the story of, she used to work at an insurance company, um, where all of the programmers were women because that wasn't unusual in the eighties. Um, and they were all in the middle of the office, um, surrounded by all of the salespeople and insurance people and that kind of thing. And they had such a big problem with the other people in the office coming and touching them and saying inappropriate things and distracting them from their work that the solution they come up came up with was they put a cage around them that locked from the inside. Like instead of addressing the problem, like that was the solution. And that shocked me. But like I tell her, you know, the stories of the kinds of things that happen today and she's shocked. She cannot believe that this is still happening, you know, 30, 40 years later. Hmm. Um, So uh, there's so many different um, causes, which is why it requires so much attention um, from so many different kinds of people at all different levels attacking this problem at the school level, at the university level, at the industry level. So we can kind of suss out, um, you know, all of the bad stuff that is plaguing our industry and make it better. That's so interesting to hear about like the historical aspect of it because I don't think of it. I, don't, I didn't think of like sexism, for example, in tech as being like a historical holdover, but it kind of sounds like it is. 
Oh, it absolutely is. Um, there, there are even um, some famous IBM ads um, that have, it's a picture of like 12 pairs of women's crossed legs, right? They're in skirts with high heels. And it says, you know, with this computer, you can replace all of these computers. Mm. So you're, you know, you're replacing, um, you know, 12 women with a piece of hardware, mm-hmm. um, which is, I, I mean, it was even in the marketing that, I mean, we still see it now when it comes to a lot of tech companies are using, you know, sex and misogyny to sell their products mm. um, that's still happening today and you know it, it's people still are shocked every single time that somebody thinks it's okay and the company is dumbfounded that it's not okay with people um, yeah. because we still allow it to happen so i wonder if one thing that will help um address this is that it's so much easier it feels like to have a voice these days like there's so many more outlets for people to call companies out and to make their voice heard uh, more than it used to be I don't know. I kind of go back and forth about that Um, because when you're looking at the outlets that we have to do that, things like Twitter and Facebook and email and that kind of thing, Mm -hmm. um, we also have this huge epidemic of online harassment. Yeah. Um, You know, with what has been happening for the past, you know, five or 10 years in the tech industry, in the gaming industry, which there's a lot of overlap between the two, um, especially what's happened, you know, over the past year in the gaming industry and how much it's spilled over into tech. um, You almost see that the other side of things more radicalized in an aggressive and violent manner that people who are speaking up will never be, right? Like, I feel passionately about us not using, you know, um, sexist or racist or, you know, whatever depictions of people people in advertising when we're selling, you know, our tech products, but not enough that I'm willing to go and threaten someone's life, which is, which we can't say about the other side, which is unfortunate. So, yeah, going back to that, like following people on Twitter, uh, someone I started following was Anita Sarkeesian. And I recommend everyone do that to not just see what she says, but also to watch the reaction because it will like both will blow your mind. Like if you do nothing else, I'd start with that. Yeah, it's it's kind of scary if you've never actually seen like the harassment machine. It is in work. Totally, absolutely. Why why do you think that response is so? I mean, is it, is it again because so this isn't like the the so we talked about this earlier how people sometimes say like oh I kind of see part of myself in this like I'm, I'm worried if you say that some people do bad things and I'm like that person then maybe I'm bad too. But there's this is a different thing which is like this incredibly aggressive hostile response to anyone who especially like women who say like there's something wrong here. There might be something bad happening. Like, why do you think people have this like hostility? I think part of it uh, goes back to the the feeling of like wanting this purity of culture when it comes to any geeky thing, right? Like when we talk about comic books or games or um, programming, you know, there's this ideal of what all of those things are. You know, I've been programming since I was eight years old and I took apart, you know, a bunch of shit that my parents didn't want me to take apart and couldn't put it back together. And like everybody has like those war stories. And I think that there's a feeling of different people coming in dilutes that. Or, you know, I, I was in high school and I got made fun of because I was a programmer, you know, and people pushed me into lockers and they feel like other people are invading that space and diluting the struggle that they went through, forgetting the fact that like, I've been a nerd my entire life. Like I played basketball and volleyball and read comic books and read science fiction. Um, So I was kind of all over the place. So I got made fun of for being a nerd too. But the difference between, you know, those people and me is now I'm in an industry where I'm being pushed out. So I'm even more marginalized than I was before, right? Like I'm being 
bullied by the people who are trying to keep people out because they were bullied. So it's hard to see the logic through it. I think it's a much more emotional, visceral response to this is something that's mine and you can't take it away and make it into something else because this is the only thing I have. Hmm. And people feel really desperate to protect that. It it does feel like an emotional desperation for sure. Like when you just when you see the response, it's it's kind of mind blowing. And it's it's sad to me, too, because like this is something that I love to do. Like this is an industry that, you know, I have been able to create my own job. You know, I work from home. I work for myself, my own boss. There are so few industries that you can do that with, you know, basically no higher education, right, beyond high school, you know, some college. Um, But it doesn't require all of these extra like certificates and degrees Mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. So anybody can do this. And it doesn't affect anyone else if I decide to do it. But people feel so strongly about it, Mm. um, because they feel it's theirs. And you know, the way that they do this thing is right. And the way that other people do this thing is wrong. um, Versus, hey, the more people we have here, the better things will be. Just like when we think about open source, right? Like the more people that contribute, the more people that are looking at issues and resolving security things, the better. Mm. Um, but when it comes to like the the industry as a whole, we don't think that like that. We think, you know, we don't want to have to change. We like the way things are. And any kind of, you know, cultural push to make things different is a threat to what I believe is the, the right way to do things. But also that it's it's possible that someone may eventually push me out because what I'm doing is not considered appropriate or okay anymore. Mm. So people feel much more emotional around it. Definitely. It's very threatening. Hmm. This has been great. I've, I've really enjoyed uh, chatting about this. Yeah, thanks for having me. Totally. Uh, should Is there anything you want to uh, plug before you're going? Maybe like an upcoming AlterConf or something like that? Um, yeah, so uh, we just started announcing AlterConfs for next year. The first one we announced uh, is January 30th, 30th in Washington, D.C., um, the other thing that I would push people towards is um, I run, um, along with Model View Culture, I run um, Fun Club, um, F-U-N-D Club, um, which brings together a bunch of tech people to donate to awesome, worthy causes that help increase diversity in the tech industry. So you give your money directly to them. We just send you like the pick of the month. Um, so it's like the fruit of the month club, but it's specifically for awesome organizations that are run by and for marginalized people mm. um, doing great things in tech. And that's um, joinfunclub.com. Nice. And you can know that those are, are vetted by you and you've, you've done some research to make sure they're, they're doing yep. the right things. Yep. Awesome. Very cool. Uh, well, again, thanks so much. This, is, this has been great. All right. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Today's show was produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to giantrobots.fm slash 175. Thanks for listening. 